everybody, welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. My name is James Rudd. I'm the digital media editor at Heart. And today we are discussing all about stroke and risk factors for stroke. Before we get into it, I'd like to thank you all for your lovely comments and reviews about the podcast that you've been leaving at iTunes and wherever else you get your podcasts. It really helps uh, keep us going and allows us to reach new listeners. So today we're interviewing Martin O'Donnell, who is a stroke physician from the National University of Ireland in Galway. Martin and his team, along with collaborators from McMaster University in Canada, have published an interesting paper looking at the variations in knowledge, awareness and treatment of hypertension and stroke risk by country income level. We'll have a really interesting discussion and I hope you enjoy it. Perhaps we can start off, Martin, by you introducing yourself for the Heart Podcast audience. Sure. Uh, my name is Martin O'Donnell. I'm a stroke geriatrician based in um, NUI Galway and sail to healthcare system in the west of Ireland um, with a co-affiliation to McMaster University and the Population Health Research Institute. Uh, my area of interest is in stroke, um, mostly stroke epidemiology as it relates to developing uh, a knowledge base around population levels uh, approaches to stroke prevention. And uh, Martin, you've recently published a paper in Heart with uh, many co-authors, some of whom you've mentioned uh, are part of the McMaster setup. Uh, the paper is entitled "Variation in Knowledge, Awareness, and Treatment of Hypertension and Stroke Risk by Country Income Level." And I thought this was a really interesting paper, and it'd be great to have you on the podcast and get your views about this paper. Uh, we're mainly an audience of cardiologists, so you're going to have to treat us carefully when it comes to talking about stroke. But clearly, there are many, many uh, common risk factors between stroke and cardiovascular disease. But perhaps we can start off by having you explain the background to this work. What was the motivation to, to do this study? Great. Um, thank you very much. So Interstroke Study is a, is a large international case control study, a labor of love by a number of academic investigators, institutions and multiple funding sources. Um, it was developed methodologically on the back of the InterHeart study that's, I'm sure, enormously familiar to the audience on this, led by Salim Youssef and Population Health Research Institute and McMaster University. Um, and that study really set the template for um, adopting a case control approach to quantifying and evaluating common risk factors of common diseases. And in many ways, case control studies are conceptualized as looking at uncommon or rare risk factors or uncommon diseases. Um, and what that study reported was 90% of the population trouble risk um, associated with nine common potentially modifiable risk factors. So built on that, you know, studies like this on the face of it would appear to lack feasibility and they're overly ambitious, but obviously enveloped within the international uh, investigators led by Salim Youssef and you know the really good academic research institution, a world-leading institution in the Population Health Research Institute. Um, we felt a similar study uh, was necessary in stroke. Um, stroke, as you know, is a is a leading cause of death, um, arguably the leading cause of acquired adult disability when you consider both covert and clinically overt stroke. So we set about um, essentially replicating uh, what was done in InterHeart. There were challenges in doing a similar study in the stroke population, 
again, the fact that neuroimaging was a, a mandatory requirement around determining primary stroke subtype. Um, and at the time this study started, it was coincident with the emergence of more widespread use of CT scanners in low middle income countries. So it was sort of a collision of things. There was an appetite. There was a precedent with Interheart. There was a group of very enthusiastic mobilized investigators. And the Interstroke was designed to address a number of clinical research questions, um, mostly relating to population health um, approaches to preventing stroke. The questions were similar and overlapping with Interheart which is the risk factors that we know, it was a quantification exercise, but the risk factors we know to be causal, what was their contribution to the attributable fraction or attributable risk of stroke? Um, and by quantifying it, one can develop a hierarchy of priorities. Which are the key risk factors? How do risk factors differ between stroke and myocardial infarction? Even though the risk factors will be overlapping and there will be a lot of commonality, the hierarchy and the contribution to disease may be different. With respect to the current publication within HEART, this was taking what was the most important risk factor for stroke, which is hypertension. And one of the things that we observed in the primary paper, where we reported 10 risk factors associated with 90% of the population attributable fraction of stroke in different regions of the world, um, we found hypertension to be consistently the most important. But what we saw was the magnitude of risk, as in measured by the odds ratio, appeared to vary by region. And it was particularly apparent when one grouped countries by income status, where you had with, um, as one transitioned from high to middle to low income countries, we saw that the magnitude of the odds ratio increased. So our, our hypothesis was, did that relate to differences in treatment patterns? As in, was the lower odds ratio observed in high-income countries related to better awareness, screening, detection, and treatment of hypertension? Now, on the face of it, this is very intuitive. Um, it's when one assembles evidence from other studies, uh, one can certainly um, draw that inference. What this study confirmed was that absolutely um, a large component of the differences in magnitude of risk actually related to interventions, screening, identification, and uptake of antihypertensive therapy. Um, and it identifies key and important deficits in um, knowledge of individuals um, about hypertension, the proportion of people who had been screened at least once in their life, um, which was an independent risk factor for stroke, not unsurprisingly. And then as one transitioned from treatment of blood pressure, and then one of the things we looked at was any treatment versus two antihypertensive agents that the the risk of stroke decreased as one transitioned across that continuum. On the one hand, it did identify key deficits, and those deficits are most pronounced, um, as expected, in lower-income countries. On the flip side, the, the sort of adjacent perspective to this would be that 
efforts that have been undertaken in identifying hypertension to be causal, in implementing strategies at a community population level to screen for hypertension, to treat hypertension, to optimize control, have actually altered the natural history of the association between hypertension and stroke. So in some ways, man-made efforts have actually had a measurable effect on the global epidemiology of stroke in a favorable way. So it means that this is working, but it also means there's a huge amount of work to be done, and particularly in regions where there's considerable deficit, which are obstacles around access to screening, access to interventions. Um, at a time when we're pursuing many other interventions, the leading cause of stroke, we have a considerable amount of work to be done. This study also feeds in with the PURE study, which is led by Salim Youssef, a very large prospective cohort study, which reported deficits again in knowledge, awareness, and uptake of antihypertensive treatments. On the one hand, it's disappointing there's such deficits. On the other hand, it's encouraging that tackling one risk factor that's readily measured, readily intervened on, um, can hold such promise in, in reducing the global burden and stroke. What were the sort of average differences, would you say, as you moved from a high-income country through middle to low-income countries in the in the awareness that hypertension is an important risk factor for stroke? Are we talking odds ratios of 1.1, 1.2, or was it a more significant difference? Can you recall? Yeah, I think one of the things would be the untreated hypertension, which is taking that population. If we translate that into the population of with risk or fraction, untreated transition from uh, a PER of 10.4% in high-income countries up to 36.3% in low-income countries wow. with, with a, 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 a gradient across that. Now, that's untreated. When you look at all hypertension, um, the PERs were quite similar, but that's because prevalence and odds ratio are the two. So the prevalence increased. But the other aspect of this is age, which is strokes occurred at a younger age in low-income countries. So the other thing that we observed was that for untreated hypertension, um, they were more likely to have in cerebral hemorrhage, more likely to occur in lower-income settings, and more likely to occur in a younger age group. So it's not just the distortion in reduction of risk of stroke. It's the profile of patients, the mean age. You live longer before you get one. Um, the type of stroke you get, and as we know, intracerebral hemorrhage has a higher mortality. Um, so it's not just the absolute risk. There's a kind of a qualitative change in what happens, when it happens, how it happens. It was interesting what you said about the use of of uh, more than one antihypertensive agent to treat patients and certainly in cardiology when we are involved with with looking after patients with high blood pressure from a cardiac point of view almost always we need more than one medication to reach the target the goal we're looking for and i guess this paper would back that up for for stroke as well yeah absolutely i mean one of the things we looked at as well was you know the population attributable risk percentage that gives you a kind of a theoretical estimate. If there was no hypertension from genesis to, to treatment, what proportion of the disease would you take away? The, the other thing we brought into this paper was the concept of impact fraction, which you know transitions that to, well, that's theoretical, that's aspirational, but it's unrealistic. 
what kind of impact fraction would you get if you realistically implemented therapies? Now, admittedly, this is an observational research study, case control study. So, you know, there, there are limitations around modeling the impact treatment. But what we found with from an impact fraction perspective is that if you treated the untreated hypertension, you would have an impact fraction of 10.3%. If you use two agents, that increases to about 17, 18%. And it's much higher for intracerebral hemorrhage at about 32% for ischemic, it's about 13.5%. Uh, so the impact fraction, which is a realistic, notwithstanding the limitations of observational research studies, a realistic estimate of what, if we were to screen and implement antihypertensive therapy, what we would prevent. Because on the flip side, the other thing we found here was there was a residual risk. So even patients, and this has been reported in other observational studies as well, which is when they're treated, um, and due to the nature of the study, it's difficult for us to model control of blood pressure because of the effect of uh, acute stroke has on blood pressure. Um, but certainly, um, there did appear to be a residual risk, which may be a consequence of years of untreated hypertension, um, where you have indigenous vascular disease, which increases uh, longer-term risk. Um, so certainly, there's a lot to be done. There is also the, the observation that younger age groups had, had a higher odds ratio associated with, and, and again, this may relate to untreated hypertension, higher risk of secondary causes of hypertension, um, but spreading the net wide around screening for hypertension. The combination therapy, again, builds into that just from what you say, which is the concept of screening and starting therapies, um, polypill concept. Um, a key thing I think this envelopes is work being done by Celine Yusuf, Dennis Xavier, and other groups is the task shifting. And some would argue that you know, having to see a doctor to get your blood pressure measured and treated may be an independent risk factor for stroke. Really? When, yeah. Well, if you shift that to the community, so you have healthcare workers, um, so there, there are less barriers and obstacles to getting screened and getting treated. What I might start with is asking your um, conclusions and kind of takeaway messages, how we can do better at raising um, awareness of hypertension. What our paper highlights is that there's huge gains to be made from uh, improving education in populations, particularly middle-low income settings, um, about the importance of hypertension as, as a risk factor, because we do rely on individuals to seek attention for blood pressure. That simple, generalizable methods to screen for hypertension. Um, similarly, you know, some educational programs around diet and lifestyle at reducing your risk and treating hypertension um, and use of generic low-cost medications um, more, more often in combination at gaining control of hypertension amongst those with it um, is, based on interstroke and other studies, the single most important strategy towards reducing national community and global burden of stroke. And you'd have to assume that it would be very cost-effective, wouldn't it? I mean, the, the massive financial cost of, of somebody having a stroke 
obviously not only to themselves, but also to the health service compared to, as you say, mostly generic medications at this stage, a fairly easy, cheap intervention to measure blood pressure. Absolutely. And one of the kind of observations from this study and from global burden disease and many other studies is, you know, in higher income settings, we tend to conceptualize stroke as occurring in older populations, maybe non-working populations. But as you transition into middle and lower income countries, um, because the mean age reduces quite dramatically, you're getting uh, a population where the, the, the health, the, the socioeconomic impact um, extends beyond just utilization of healthcare resources. Yeah, it's taking people out of in their prime working lives in many cases. Yeah, absolutely. Martin, what would you say are the unresolved areas in this um, in this field in terms of uh, trying to reduce risk of stroke and investigate risk factors? Are there ongoing studies, sub studies of interstroke still happening? What do you see as the remaining questions? So, I mean, with interstroke similar to heart, we're working through a series of papers on the individual risk factors. Okay. Um, so we've completed a paper on lipids. We've uh, completed papers on uh, chronic kidney disease, and on tobacco smoking exposure, and then also by, by regions. So we would hope and we would plan that interstroke would provide like, additional, in some cases, confirmatory evidence, in other cases, uh, novel information on the association of both traditional and emerging risk factors for stroke. Um, Interstroke is also contributing around our understanding of the genetic contribution um, to, to stroke risk. Um, and that's been led by Guillaume Paré, uh, who is also based in PHRI McMaster. So these patients had blood drawn, did they, at baseline for That's right. a variety of yeah plasma, but also genetic risk factors? Yeah. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time. Dr. O'Donnell, it's been really interesting to talk to you um, and uh, to get your insights into this wonderful study. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you.